No user walks around thinking, gosh, I wish a big company could just make more money. Nobody thinks that way. No consumer or user thinks that way. But it's how big companies think. And it's not a bad thing. It's the reality of working in and operating a large company. So we, we really try to focus big companies on reframing business problems into user problems. You're listening to Customer Show, the podcast that explores what makes people tick, click, and buy. I'm your host, Caitlin Burgoyne. I'm a marketer by trade and a four-time founder by choice. And I believe whoever gets closer to the customer wins. So here's the multi-million dollar question. In a world where everyone is fighting for your buyer's attention, how do people like us, marketers and entrepreneurs who want to drive more sales without working around the clock or resorting to shady marketing techniques, how do we persuade more customers to buy from us? That's the question, and this show has the answers. As builders, we can sometimes get ahead of ourselves if we think of a fresh new idea. You know the feeling, a light bulb moment that wakes you from your sleep. You jump up and you spend the rest of the night strategizing and planning. It's like lightning in a bottle. But what seems like a brilliant idea for your business may not be right for your customers. If you're in a startup, this can lead to pursuing new product ideas or marketing campaigns without first checking in with the people who actually pay your bills, your customers. But this isn't just a problem that small businesses face. When you hear the word innovation, what kind of companies come to mind? I bet that Fortune 1000 companies like banks and manufacturers aren't the first ones you think of. But as you'll hear in this episode, Companies big and small must go through the same process of understanding their customers' pain points before they go about building the next innovative solution. My guest is a founding partner of the corporate innovation and venture development firm, Highline Beta. He's also the co-author of Lean Analytics. Highline Beta works with big Fortune 1000 companies and helps them to learn how to think and adapt like a scrappy startup, all while keeping a pulse on their core business. I'm excited to share my conversation with Ben Yosevics. I brought Ben on because I wanted to hear his perspective on how large companies are thinking about innovation and growth. I began my conversation with Ben by asking what businesses can do today to future-proof themselves in this weird new world. It's difficult, of course, to uh, give anybody sort of a, a playbook of how to future-proof themselves. Who knows what you know, the world holds for us as we move, hopefully sort of post uh, pandemic, but who knows, who knows mm-hmm. what, what comes after that. But I would say for, for small businesses, and I think the size of business and industry and these things do matter, but I think for, for smaller businesses, you know, there is this acceleration to digitizing. There's an acceleration to selling online, providing both product and services in new ways Certainly, there's a lot of uh, rethinking about how you even have physical spaces and what those look like. And, and although I think we will get, of course, get through COVID, you know, many, many things will have changed from that. So I think small businesses, I think we think a lot about, you know, digitization, accelerating the speed with which we move online, whether it's for things like bookings or e-commerce or what have you. I think for bigger businesses, it's not dissimilar. It, it's really just about executing new things at speed. 
and figuring out the right model for what we call growth innovation. So it's less about disruption for me and thinking about, well, what, ha- you know, what happens if my business gets disrupted, although that, that can and does happen, but more so about, about growth and where are those opportunities going to be? Customer demands will change. Customer needs will, will change and evolve. The way we deliver service will change. But, but ultimately, for me, it's about innovating more and more quickly. I love that. Okay. So people may not be familiar with your company. Some people will, some people won't. But when I went on your website, I was greeted with a question and it said, where will the high growth businesses of the future come from? So what is the answer to that question? So I think the the short answer is everywhere. The intent behind the question is really more so to challenge bigger companies in how they think about innovation and and growth. And again, so I think the term growth innovation is the right way of thinking about it. So big companies are, they, you know, what we like to say is they've already won because they're big. And so where's the next growth going to come from? You can't, it's very difficult to hockey stick growth, something that's already enormous. And so where are those new things going to come from, those new billion dollar businesses? So I think that's one way we think about answering that question is helping big companies grow beyond their core. I think the other aspect of that question and why I say that the short answer is everywhere, growth opportunities will be from everywhere is because I think big companies are in fact getting better and better at building new things that can then grow and leverage their assets, but also startups. And our model is this hybrid venture studio model where we're helping big companies grow outside their core, sometimes building things in-house but sometimes leveraging the startup ecosystem as well or building startups from scratch. And so I think opportunities are everywhere and both big companies and you know effectively little companies, startups can capture that growth. Very interesting and exciting. And so tell us more about Highline Beta. Like what does your team actually do? Sure. So, so there's a few parts to our business. There's a service side to our business, which again is helping big companies we tend to be industry agnostic, but we've done work in insurance, in banking, in consumer packaged goods or CPG, health, health space. But it's really about helping big companies identify new areas of opportunity outside of their core. So we're not necessarily in the digital transformation space or the incremental improvement or incremental innovation space, although incremental innovation is incredibly important for big companies. We're in the new markets, new business models, new products, arena. And so our our job is to help big companies find those opportunities and then figure out how to create or realize those opportunities, either through internal innovation, where they'll put ideally small teams against those opportunities to try to build them out and see what, what they can do there, or external innovation, which again would be leveraging startups, or our venture studio, which would help them build external startups from scratch. And so there's a service component to the business that helps big companies do that. There's an accelerator component to our business as well, which is helping big companies more effectively partner with startups. And then there's a studio and venture capital component of our business, which is investing in startups that we help partner in with our uh, corporate clients. Amazing. And there's a lot I want to unpack there. But before we get into the details of like how you help them spot these opportunities and how you identify which partners they might want to work with, like why do so many corporations need help when it comes to innovation? What are, What's stopping them from being able to innovate as quickly as they'd like to or as effectively as they'd like to? So I think 
what what slows them down or holds them back is the thing that's made them successful up to this point. It's the fact that they're running large, successful businesses or large businesses. Sometimes they may not be, you know, as successful, which would accelerate the the pace of uh, need for change. But nevertheless, they're running big businesses and they have large operations. They have many people. They have lots of customers. And, and that's a, a, a positive thing. And it's also a bit of an anchor. And so it is, in fact, the existing operation and the need to run that and usually focus on the efficiency of that business, squeezing as much value out of that business as you can. That holds big companies back from also exploring net new things. And that's usually when they do, in fact, get disrupted, where if they're not able to explore new models, new types of customers, whatever the case may be, some startup somewhere or startup somewhere start to nip at their heels, innovate faster, capture the imagination and attention of of the market and start to grow much, much faster while a big company is, is holding on to what it has. So I think our job is to not, again, disrupt or take away from what they're doing, but it's to give them ways and options to do new things on the periphery of their core business. Okay, let's take a quick time out. If you're listening to today's episode, I bet you're already imagining how you can apply all these ideas to your work. But before you go out and eagerly rewrite all of the copy on your website or change your whole marketing strategy, first, I need you to ask yourself this very important question. Do you know, without a shadow of a doubt, who your most valuable customer segment is? If not, you're in trouble. You don't have time to waste by chasing the wrong customers. Even with all of these ideas from our amazing guests, if you're chasing the wrong people, it's going to feel like an uphill battle. But if you're ready to stop wasting time on marketing that doesn't work, and attract more dream customers, then I've got something you are going to love. I put together a free tool just for you. I call it my customer ranking calculator. Now in a matter of minutes, this quick exercise can help you to gain clarity around which customer segments you should focus on and which ones you may want to stop serving. That sounds good, right? So if you wanna download this free tool, head on over to customercamp.co forward slash calculator. That's customercamp.co forward slash calculator. Okay, back to the show. I want to spend a little time talking about the mindset that fuels innovation because you've touched on this, but in what ways are bigger businesses thinking differently than these scrappy startup teams? Like when you think about the actual people inside of the organization, what is it that you need to have that kind of like innovation fueled mindset? I don't know if you'd be surprised or not, but there are a lot of people within big companies that are thinking in, in an innovative way, thinking creatively. I would suggest that many startups that have won, somebody inside a large company had that idea mm-hmm. uh, because they have access to all the assets that startups don't have. They see the customers, they have the data, they have distribution, they have marketing, they often have domain expertise, they often have technology. And so I would suspect many, many startups that have grown and 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 won and almost look like they sort of came out of nowhere, somebody in a big company somewhere pitched that idea. 
And what, what's lacking inside of big companies in many cases is the facility for exploring those opportunities. But it's, it's, it's rarely a lack of interest, if you will. And there are people in those big companies that are eager to grow and change things, but don't necessarily have the facility or the instruments or the air cover to do so. Now, having said that, I think founders of startups are a unique breed. It's a unique creature. When you start a company as a founder, you're all, you know, you're, you're a, a percent of a percent of a percent of the population because most people are not founders and don't start companies. So I, I wouldn't suggest that there are tons of founders equal to startup founders inside of large companies, but the creativity, the, the drive to build new things, to help their company grow and succeed absolutely exists within large companies. Right. I mean, I think you probably have heard this. I wasn't, didn't Blockbuster put out a service similar to Netflix and then they killed it because they just didn't want to like be distracted from their core business. Is that a story you'd heard? Yeah, they, they, they did. And then if you read Mark Randolph uh, was the, one of the founders and the original idea person behind Netflix if you read his book, which is awesome, he actually talks about Blockbuster trying to acquire Netflix. Mm-hmm. And if I, again, I, I'm pretty sure I'm right. I, at one point, it was about 50 million bucks because Netflix was struggling and Blockbuster's like, oh, maybe $50 million. And then I think Blockbuster even walked away from it. So again, it's, it's not for lack, you know, there are smart hustlers inside of these large companies that want to figure these things out. But it's hard for a big operation to shift gears. It's hard for it to try new things and, frankly, measure success in a different way than how you would measure profit and loss. And so just a lot of things have to go well or change or be created inside large organizations to give them a shot to create new things. Right. And so then what has to happen internally? So let's talk about the the Fortune 1000 businesses, which you work with a lot of those. What has to happen internally in order for them to start thinking about innovating like a scrappy startup? Like what's the transformation that has to happen? I think there's a few there's a few things that start to happen. Many of them will be partnering ad hoc with startups and think to themselves, there must be a better way of doing this, or we can't only rely on external startups. Many of the Fortune uh, 1000 will have corporate venture capital groups, CVCs, that are investing in startups. And again, so I think part of what happens with a big company is as they start to see and, and, and get into the startup ecosystem more, they realize just how much is going on, and then they, they, they end up looking inwardly. So I think that's one of the things that happens with a lot of big companies. Some of the things that have to happen internally, you're seeing more and more what we call sort of venture groups or venture arms being formed. And these are sort of black ops-like teams that are a little bit outside of the main business. Oftentimes, you know, when we were when we were working out of offices, they would be in a separate physical location, for example. Mm-hmm. They would have a separate mandate around building new things and experimenting. And so, you know, there are structures emerging within these large companies that are giving them this sort of flexibility and capability of experimenting and trying new things. 
And so that's, that, that I think is, is, is happening more and more, but not so much as, you know, innovation labs or R and D and things that are important, but thinking about building new businesses. And that's really the switch that I've seen, or for me is a signal when a big company says we have to create lots of little companies might not be sure how to do it or how to structure it necessarily, but that's usually the switch for me that says, okay, you're ready to start trying these new things in, in a more creative way or a more, more of a growth mindset sort of way. Right. So they're not just innovating on their core product, offering new features and services to existing customers. They're thinking about bringing something new to market that is maybe solving a completely different pain point or a new problem that is unrelated to their core business. That's interesting. So on the Highline beta site, you also say that to innovate, businesses have to start with a problem and they have to identify their customers' unmet needs. Now, this is speaking my language because this is the type of work that I talk about with like the people who come through my training all of the time. So like, tell me like, what are these unmet needs? And more importantly, how does one go about identifying them? Yeah, so I think one of the challenges big companies have is that they have a lot of problems business and business problems, right? So again, they've identified business problems. Usually a business problem looks like we would like to sell more X or we would like to make more money in Y or we would like to expand into a new market. And very often those start as business problems because they can see all the data and they have all the experience in their business. And what that leaves out is, does anybody care? Mm-hmm. You know, is there a user on the, no user walks around thinking, gosh, I wish, you know, big company could just make more money. I mean, nobody, you know, nobody thinks that way. No consumer or user thinks that way, but it, it's how big companies think. And, and, and that's not, that's not a bad thing. It's the reality of, of working in and operating a large company. So we, we really try to focus big companies on reframing business problems into user problems and 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 of course you'll understand this where you know we can ship things and you know building things isn't the isn't the hardest challenge usually it's not really a feasibility issue for the most part it's really a desirability issue does anybody care and you know in my own experience and startups do this as well where they build things cuz they can and then they look for a market or a customer and i've i've been there and i've done that and i've made that mistake and i think the, the key is really understanding the user, having empathy for the user, finding those pain points and problems that they have that you then realize you can solve. And it's not that you're trying to go into a business that's so radically different from your core. So you're looking for adjacent opportunities where you can still leverage your core assets, but in a new way. Right. So it really does change from this inwardly focused view of businesses. You know, we're in the boardroom making decisions about how to solve business problems to, you know, as Steve Blank would say, getting out of the building and figuring out what users want. This is great. So can you give an example, maybe one that comes to mind where a company had obviously this business problem, something they needed to solve from a, you know, revenue perspective or operationally, but then was able to identify user problems and get the alignment? Or is there one that comes to mind for you that you could share? Well, I would say that, you know, if, if I can use an, an example, like an existing client as an example. So we do a lot of work with RBC, Royal Bank of Canada. And a few years ago now, they launched something called RBC Ventures. So again, sort of this separate group, a little bit disconnected, a little bit on the outside of, of the bank that with the express intent of building new ventures, new businesses. And 
if you look at what RBC Ventures has done and some of the things they've done, you know, for example, they've built a number of businesses. They've also, by the way, acquired a number of businesses as well in and around this, the home space. Hmm. So the space of owning a home. And why that's interesting is because it's, it's, there's a connection to a core business, which is a mortgage business. Of course, you know, RBC, like all banks, you know, mortgages is a big component of, of their business. But mortgages by themselves are one touch point with a customer. And when you look at mortgages, you know, the, 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 how you compete on a mortgage is on a rate. And RBC Ventures looked at that strategically and said, well, people who own homes or want to own homes have all sorts of other problems before we get to the mortgage, finding the right home, moving into the home, maintaining the home. You know, you can imagine that customer journey. And so that's a good example of saying, hey, we, we have a big business in the mortgage space. We, it's not that we don't, we want to grow that business, like every bank I would imagine wants to grow that business, but we also want to find other user problems in and around the customer journey of the home buying experience that become interesting. I love that example. And a guest that I had on recently was Bob Molesta, and he tells this great story. He was in the condo development world years ago and discovered through his own customer discovery and going out and understanding the needs of his customers that he really wasn't in the business of building condos. He was in the business of moving lives. And they started looking at all of these adjacent services that they could offer to make the actual transition for their customers tended to be people who were downsizing have a much more smooth transition into their condo and thinking about that holistic customer journey. And they ended up doing really, really well. I think they started the company during a recession and they outperformed all of the other competitors in their space because they weren't thinking about building condos. They're thinking about moving lives. So it sounds like RBC is taking a similar approach. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. I think it's just it's just understanding what really matters to the customer. And if you understand the problem, and let's assume you can solve the problem, that very often creates incredible differentiation from whatever competition you have. So and then and and that differentiation then gives you the right, if you will, to acquire more customers. And all of a sudden, all kinds of great things happen, whether it's lowering acquisition costs, whether it's growing market share, you know, whatever the case may be. But when you find that sweet spot of Hey, I, I really understand what matters to my customer and I can deliver a service that against that promise or that pain point. All of a sudden that, that's, that's what drives growth. It's what drives growth inside of big companies when they start to build new ventures. And it's what drives growth for startups because startups can build all kinds of technology. But if they don't understand the user and what the user's pain points are, they will fail. And so, so there's, there's real applicability there, whether you're inside of a, a large company or working in a startup. Absolutely. Okay. So now let's get into the meaty stuff. So let's say that you know that you want to look at doing some form of innovation. You really don't know what the opportunities are in your space. How do you go about identifying customers on met needs or identifying problems? Like where do you start? There's a few places you can start. We we think of this as sort of a phase of discovery. And and you can sort of attack this from a whole bunch of different angles. You do you, you need some kind of starting point, whether it's 
uh, a market you want to go into or a, a like a, let's say a user group or a persona of a customer that you want to you know create more value for or attract to your uh, company you may have a thesis around the future of something whether that's your industry or something else so you need some kind of starting point ultimately for the way we think about a discovery process is regardless of your starting point you you have to work through mostly what we see in lean startup methodology or design thinking methodology or jobs to be done methodology without being a you know a zealot about any process it's really about starting to do customer research mm-hmm. uh, primary research talking to users learning what their pain points are starting to put early scrappy sacrificial concepts and prototypes in front of them you know all the way trying to figure out what really matters to users from and i use this term desirability before it's a bit of a design thinking you know structure of de- desirability feasibility viability so you're really trying to understand desirability and so whether you're starting from a business problem and you need to reframe it whether you're starting with a thesis around you know the future of something whether you're starting with a user group that you think might have unmet needs that you believe you could solve for doesn't really matter as long as you go through the right process of doing that discovery work and again that usually starts for the most part with you know secondary research understanding the market do you know doing your homework if you will and then talking to talking to people Right. And so you mentioned you're talking to people, then you're getting some scrappy, low fidelity mock-ups in front of them, trying to see how they interact. Like what stage would you say, what are the signals that you're onto something? Like at what point do you go, okay, like I feel like they're resonating with this. We should be putting more energy into this. So, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. The, the answer of course is it depends on a number of things. You know, what, what are you doing? Is it B2C? Is it B2B? You know, if it's if it's B two C and let's say it's a new product you're building, you could you could go quite far with the validation work. You can do pre orders, for example. You could mm-hmm. you could you know do transactions online and and then refund people because it's not real, for example. You you can you can start to get things to a fairly quantitative state. If it's B two B, we often like to try to secure letters of intent from businesses. Mm-hmm. Not hundreds of businesses, you know, a handful. It, again, it depends on how enterprise it is, you know, the, the thing you're working on or whatever the case may be. So you're looking for some quantitative signals, but you're also looking for qualitative signals. And you will never have sufficient data necessarily to make a decision whether to commit or not commit. There's there's a certain amount of instinct and intuition that plays into it. Now, having said that. It's not as if you go through a process of doing this discovery work and then say, well, I think I've got, you know, I've got some data, I've got enough, you know, qualitative signals that we should go do this. And then you put $50 million into it and do it. So right. you're, the whole process is one of relatively small, depends on what you're working on, bets and experiments along the way. So we move from a discovery process to what we call a venture validation process, which you know, maybe we're building a minimum viable product at that stage, but it's still small and experimenting the whole way. So we're really trying to increase cycle time inside of these, you know, iteration time within these large companies. So they don't just say, okay, let's go make an enormous bet. 
will go into you know development for a year, spend a ton of money on it, then launch it with a huge marketing campaign, and then realize we made a mistake. So it is about iteratively increasing the fidelity along the way. I love that. And you have hinted at what I think might be part of the answer for my next question. So what mistakes do you see these teams making when it comes to validating ideas and then bringing them to market? Like what are the typical mistakes that they could overcome if they were to have more of a process? Deciding when to make those big bets, I think is still a challenge for companies because they know scale and they live in scale every day. And so, you know, working with something that has 10 customers or whatever the case may be, just, just doesn't matter. And so, you know, they are always eager to put the foot on the gas and that's, that's a difficult balancing act. And and I, w- I would suggest startups are not in a dissimilar place when sometimes you see startups raising enormous rounds of capital to grow at all costs. And you wonder, do they, do they really have, you know, what we call product market fit, or are they just hoping they'll grow into it someday? So I think, you know, that's one of those, which is when do we make big bets to start really scaling things? I think then, you know, for big companies, the cycle time, you know, the iter- the iterations that we can go through, you know, what experiment do we run? How do we build something? How do we ship it in market to test it, learn from that? So that build, measure, learn cycle uh, that we'd be familiar of uh, inside of Lean Startup, I think is always a little bit slower than startups. There's regulatory, there's legal, there's security things that do have a tendency to slow big companies down. And and then it becomes a question of just, does it slow it down so much, unfortunately, that we're not going to get enough iterations of things through? We're not going to be able to run enough experiments to really crack the nut? Or is that, you know, for lack of a better term, the price we pay for doing this within a large organization, but is still fast enough to get to a place where we can learn, to get to a place where we can start to leverage the big company scale and then really grow things? Right. And it sounds like, I mean, if, if their typical process is do a bit of validation and then go off behind closed doors for a year and then launch something with a huge budget, it sounds like the speed of iteration, even if it's slower than, you know, maybe some of their potential startups that are nipping at their heels, it's probably still a lot faster <laughs> than what is traditionally happening inside of companies. Exactly. It, you know what, honestly, to me, it, it's one of these things where it's all relative to where you came from and the experience you had before. And so, so big companies really can't move as quickly as startups because startups can move for the most part, particularly early stage ones with, you know, arguably reckless abandon. Mm -hmm. Now as startups mature, that slows down bigger companies that are still startups, you know, will move slower. They have customers, they can't piss them off. They've got, you know, tech stacks that they can't just muck around with. So, you know, as you grow, the speed with which you can experiment does slow down, but it's still relative when a big company does almost no experimentation for the most part, and suddenly is iterating, you know, every month, for example, whatever, whatever the case is, it's, it's, that's a radical shift. And so as long as they can keep that pace of learning up to a reasonable clip, to make decisions about doubling down on something or killing something, which also within big companies is very difficult for them to do, then they have a shot at really, you know, solving the problem of, you know, what, what do users really care about? And did I actually deliver something that solves that problem? And can I actually build a business against that? So it's speed, but relative speed. 
Mm-hmm. I think that that's so true. I remember when I was first starting my tech company, the thing that was thrown around a lot was Mark Zuckerberg's quote, like move fast and break stuff. And I feel like that can be great. But at the same time, it gives like startups license to just sometimes make really poorly informed decisions. Just be like, I'm moving fast, I'm breaking stuff, <laughs> as opposed to actually doing the proper discovery needed to make sure that they're working on the right things and moving quickly in the right direction. Yeah, agreed. So so this is true for startups. It's true of corporate innovation. It's not, nobody should feel like a headless chicken running around like a lunatic. It, that's not, if, if that's what it feels like, it's, you're not going about it in the right way. There is method to this madness. There are lots of ups and downs. There's lots of twists in the road, whatever sort of analogy you want to use, but it's not complete chaos. It's really meant to be controlled chaos. And the methodologies around innovation, you know, lean startup design thinking jobs to be done, they apply for startups, they can apply to large organizations as well. So there is method to this madness. And and then again, with bigger companies, it's just a little bit harder. It's a little bit harder because you have this infrastructure. You know, we at Highline Beta believe that if you can if you can figure out how to solve a problem in the right way for a user or a customer or a customer segment that the scale that a large company has is a legitimate unfair advantage if you Mm -hmm. can leverage it successfully. Startups don't have that. They solve a problem, then they have to raise capital, then they have to grow, and that has all kinds of implications if you you go down the road of of raising capital and and continuing to do so. A big company doesn't have those same – they have different challenges. They don't have those. They already have lots of customers. They already have lots of distribution. They have – you know, data is a great example. They have lots of data. If you're if you're doing AI work and you're a startup, you have no data. Mm-hmm. If you're a big company, you have now you have to get access to it and all of those. You know, there's there's hoops to jump through. But if you can solve a real problem for a customer and you have these assets that you can then leverage, you know, we believe you can build businesses that can scale faster than what startups can do once you figure it out. That should make so many teams feel really optimistic. And I think you're so right. Well, they face these challenges that might limit the speed. Once they actually get the wheels moving, they can just accelerate so much faster. Okay, so with that in mind, what would you say is your number one piece of advice for corporate leaders that are looking at needing to move into a new space or wanting to move into a new space? If you had to kind of narrow it down to that one kind of starting piece of advice, what might that be? Yeah, so I think for me, the the advice is try it, which I know that sounds a little silly, I suppose. But what I really mean is take three people, 100 days, give them the air cover they need to do, I'm going to say whatever they want, I, I, big asterisks on that, but hopefully people understand what I mean. Put a, put a methodology in place, put some guardrails in place, take three, four, five cr- people, cross-functional team, give them 100 days, maybe 200 days, and tell them to try to build a business. And I wouldn't go after the company's biggest problems, right? So don't go after those core things that have to get done that are on a one-year roadmap with a one-year or two-year budget. Go after something new, do it relatively quietly, don't make a ton of hoopla about it, and prove that you can execute this new approach to things, this faster approach, and learn, and just learn, 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 learn a ton. And then see if you can figure out how to scale that model after. So I know that's a few things strung together. That's but- golden, though. That process is golden. Yeah, it's just, just you know, I, I, 
often I've, I say this to big companies, like give me three people in a hundred days and the permission to go do a bunch of things. And let's see what, let's see what comes out the other side. And then we'll learn from that. And then we can figure out, is this a repeat? Can we ultimately come up with a repeatable, scalable model for building new businesses or ventures inside of a large organization? But don't start there sort of from the bottom up with this black ops team, just try it. So you need, a lot of things have to fall into place to pull that off. But but when you when you make the ask relatively small, you might just be able to pull it off. That's fantastic. And so, Ben, if people want to learn more from you and more about the work that your team at Highline Beta is doing, where should they go? Yeah, so uh, by all means, visit our website, highlinebeta.com. You know, find me. My email address is just ben at highlinebeta.com. People can reach out anytime. They can find me and the company on LinkedIn, on Twitter. Reach out and, and happy to share more with, with anybody that has questions or wants to keep chatting. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. Hey there. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to the show. I absolutely love getting nerdy with you and our guests each week. It is just so much fun. And speaking of nerdy marketing stuff, Have you heard about the power of reciprocity in marketing? Reciprocity is one of the best methods you can use to persuade people to take action. It's simple. Give something small for free before you ask for a sale. You see this all the time in marketing. Sometimes it's a free sample, a free trial, or even a free podcast like this one. With that in mind, I've got a small favor to ask. If you've gotten at least one aha moment while listening to the show, could you go to Apple Podcasts and give Customer Show a five-star rating? It'll only take a few seconds, and ratings are really the best way to help new people discover the show. I see every rating, and I'm beyond grateful for each one. And who knows? Maybe one day you'll need something from me, and then I can return the favor for you. So thanks again.